Well, good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to see you. This is my kind of Sunday today. Today we get to celebrate the greatest day in history. This is literally the best thing that has happened ever. You can't top Easter. It can't be done. Christmas is fun, but today is the day when Jesus defeated death, when he rose again and when he made a way for us all to be saved. Can I get an amen? Amen. I know we're not that sort of church, but come on. (laughs) It's Easter Sunday. Yes. Well, if you've been with us at all in the past few months, you'll know that we've been following a series called Journey to the Cross. And we've been looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus as he approached the crucifixion, experiencing all that he went through on our behalf. And Steve concluded that series for us on Good Friday, where we arrived at last at the foot of the cross. But of course, that isn't the end of the story, is it? If it was, then none of us would be sitting here today in this place. For one thing, we'd have no reason to believe that all the things Jesus said about himself were true. I'm certain if Jesus had not risen from the dead, his disciples would have disbanded soon after the crucifixion and would have heard no more about it. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so though Steve concluded the series, Journey to the Cross on Good Friday, this morning I am going to reconclude it. And I know that's not a word, but this story is so fantastic I've had to make up a word just to describe it. This is the greatest plot twist of all time. This is better than Vader being Luke's father at the end of Empire. This is better than Bruce Willis being dead at the end of Sixth Sense. Jesus is alive. I was kind of hoping for another amen, but it's all right, we'll carry on. And so this morning what I want us to do is I want us to experience this story through the eyes of the disciples, those that were there. I want us to feel what they felt. I want us to see what they saw, and I want us to conclude what they concluded, that Jesus is alive. Yes! Come on. (laughs) By the end, I'm going to get you excited. I am. I'm going to hype you up this morning. Um, So I'm going to use the Bible to help us do that because it's our best source of information about Jesus. Uh, And I want us just to begin where we left off on Good Friday. So if you've got Bibles with you, if you could be finding John chapter 20 for me, um, that would be great. And I'm just going to set the scene for a couple of minutes. Jesus is dead. The death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans has never been in doubt. As well as the gospel accounts in our Bible, there are many other sources, historical sources, that confirm this fact. We have manuscripts from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. We have part of a book by a Roman historian named Tacitus that mentions his execution under Pontius Pilate. The Syrian satirist Lucian talks of his crucifixion, as does the Stoic philosopher Marabar Cyprian, and the Jewish Talmud even mentions the death of Jesus. Most historical events, we only have one or two sources to confirm, but with this we have many more. Jesus' death is certain. Even the atheist historian and New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann writes that Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. It's indisputable. But what did that mean for those that loved him 
best. Jesus had many followers. He had many people who believed in him, men and women who left their homes and their jobs and their family to follow him. They committed themselves to his teaching. They saw him as a, a rabbi. That's a, an old word for teacher. They wanted to learn to live how he lived. And that itself isn't that unusual. There were lots of rabbis in the first century that you could sign up to follow. But the thing about Jesus was that he was different. He was someone who spoke with authority. He was someone who challenged the established view as well as the establishment. If you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, you had to do some pretty crazy things. He told his followers to love their enemies, to forgive people again and again and again. And he told them to pray for those who persecute you. Not only that, but he asked his followers to go and heal the sick, to drive out demons to do the things that he did, but I suppose the real challenge for Jesus' followers was believing the things he said about himself because he made some pretty outrageous claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, most rabbis claim to have knowledge from God, as most preachers would claim to tell you, this is what the Bible says, this is what God wants you to do. But Jesus didn't just claim to have knowledge from God, he claimed to be God. He said things like, your sins are forgiven, and only God can make that kind of proclamation. And so the point is that to be a follower of Jesus required that you were all in. And they were. Out of the 12 that Jesus chose, his 12 disciples, only Judas lost his way. The rest were sold out for Jesus, committed to his revolutionary way of thinking. They imagined a glorious future. And Jesus often spoke about the kingdom of heaven and they believed that by sticking with him they would be important in this new kingdom. In fact, from time to time, they even argued about who would be the greatest in the new kingdom. With Jesus at their side, what could possibly go wrong? They became emboldened. So much so that when Jesus was arrested, Peter withdrew his sword and went to attack them, chopping off the ear of the high priest's servant. But things did go wrong. Jesus asked Peter to put his sword away. He went willingly with the guards and instead of sitting on a throne as a new king in a new kingdom, he hung on a cross with a sign that said, here is Jesus, king of the Jews. A mockery. They expected revolution and restoration, but they got defeat and death. And so when we meet the disciples again on this morning, they're broken, defeated. Peter and John had followed Jesus to the high priest's house, but that's where Peter had denied even knowing him. Only John made it to the crucifixion himself. The other disciples had most likely gone into hiding, fearing the soldiers would be at their door next. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the ones that cared for Jesus' body. Joseph provided the tomb, Nicodemus the spices, and they wrapped it and sealed it. And Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees were fearful The disciples would take the body and so they asked for a guard to be posted at the tomb. And Jesus' followers were nowhere to be seen. And so this is where we find ourselves at the start of John chapter 20. Don't worry, it gets better. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, I imagine out of breath, they've taken the Lord, they've taken him out of the tomb, and I I don't know where they've put him. 
Uh, it was customary for Jewish people to visit the tomb of a loved one for up to three days after they had been laid to rest. They believed that the spirit hovered around the tomb during that time. And Mary arrives early. That means she probably arrived, arrived between the last watch of the night, which was between 3 and 6 a.m., so no one was around. And as she arrives at the tomb, she notices that the heavy stone that was covering the entrance is gone. She probably rubbed her eyes, did a, a double take in the dim light to make sure she'd seen correctly, but the stone was not there. It had been rolled away. The tomb was empty. And her initial thoughts is someone has taken the body. Someone's taken him, but who and for what purpose? You see, the Jewish leaders didn't want the body moved because they needed everyone to know that he was dead. They wanted the people to see that the claims he made about himself were false. He was just a man trying to start a revolution. Nothing special, certainly not the Son of God. The Roman soldiers didn't want to move the body either because they had crucified Jesus to appease the Jewish leaders and keep the peace. To move the body would just cause more unrest among the people. And the disciples couldn't move because up until now there'd been an armed guard on duty at the grave. And besides, they were all hiding, terrified that they were next. So who would do such a thing? I imagine these are the questions that ran through her head as she ran to find the other disciples. Who would do it? Had they not suffered enough, now even his body had been taken from them. Perhaps she hoped that Peter and the other disciple could shed some light on the matter. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still laying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were hiding. This little bit of John here, chapter 20, contains some really interesting but completely unnecessary details to the point where it could only have been written by someone recalling the events as they saw them. Think about it. John, who's the writer of this gospel, he could have said that they arrived at the tomb and saw it was empty, but instead he says they, they ran. They ran Peter and the other disciple. And scholars believe that the other disciple is John himself, the one who refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. They ran, but the other disciple was faster than Peter. Essentially, this is John saying, we were both running as quick as we could, but I was quicker. <laughs> I got there first. I, I won the race. You know, but I didn't go in. I was respectful. I got there first, but I waited. And then when Peter finally arrives, he just charges straight into the thing. And again, he says in verse 8, I went in second, even though I was first. And to us it seems a bit superfluous, a bit pointless, but I think the detail is important to John because the events of that morning are so significant to him. And they saw that the tomb was empty and they went in and what they saw inside the tomb defied explanation. Both the body wrapping and the head covering lay exactly where the body had been. It didn't make any sense. If you were going to steal a body, you wouldn't unwrap it first. That would be ludicrous. That'd be like trying to steal an Easter egg in the middle of the night and taking the foil wrapping off. No, just take the whole thing, and then you get away with it. Even more ridiculous is the idea of unwrapping the body and carefully placing the wrappings back where they had been when the body was there. Seriously, what would be the point? 
No, this was something else entirely. And we're told it's in this moment that John starts to believe at the empty tomb and the folded grave clothes. The first real piece of evidence that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And what amazing evidence it is. Because the only thing you can do with an empty tomb is notice what isn't in it. The tomb was not hidden. It wasn't a secret. The Jewish leaders knew where it was, as did the Romans, as did Jesus' followers, as did many, many people who lived in Jerusalem. If anyone were to claim that Jesus was not in his tomb, all it would take is a couple of strong men to pop over, roll away the stone, take a peek and say, nope, you're wrong, there he is. Except that there he wasn't. The stone didn't even need moving. It was empty. And by the same virtue, if the Jewish leaders had moved him, when his followers started to claim he's risen, all they would have needed to do was say, no, he's not, we've got his body, it's here, look. But they didn't. Some people think the disciples could have taken it and lied about the resurrection, but all the evidence we have suggests that they were too frightened to be seen in public, let alone attempt a grave robbery. And besides, what could they really expect to achieve from such a stunt? They had seen what the Jewish authorities had done to Jesus. All that waited them was suffering, pain, and ultimately death. There was no motive for them to attempt such a thing. And the simple fact of the matter is, if the tomb had not been empty, it would have been impossible for the church to begin in Jerusalem, where the tomb was located, because no one in their right mind would have believed it, unless the tomb was empty. And John gets there first. He arrives at the tomb first, as we know, he's already told us, but he also realises first, and he starts to believe. But they don't hang around. The sun is coming over the horizon. Others will be arriving soon, so they retreat to the safety of their locked room. And John doesn't record it for us, but I kind of wish he had. I kind of wish he told us about that conversation that him and Peter had on the way back to that locked room. You know, after he'd finished gloating about winning the race, I wonder if hope just started to return to them. I wonder if they just started to get excited that maybe Jesus was back. But Mary remains behind. <clears throat> Verse 11 tells us, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realise that it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him, toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Instead, go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. See, in her grief, she remains behind and eventually plucks up the courage to peer into the tomb, except that this time it's not empty, but it's occupied by a couple of angels, asking her, why is she crying? But before she can even begin to process what is being asked, and indeed who is asking it, she turns and comes face to face with Jesus. She doesn't recognise him straight away, and John doesn't really explain that to us. Perhaps 
Her eyes were filled with tears and she couldn't see him clearly. Perhaps last time she'd seen him, his face had been in agony upon the cross. Perhaps the resurrected Jesus looked not like he had when he was on earth. It's not clear, but it doesn't take long, does it? Jesus says, Mary, and she knows it's him. And she grabs hold of him to make sure he's not a ghost and holds on for so long that Jesus needs to tell her to let go because there's more that needs to be done. And this scene gives us our second piece of evidence this morning that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. But this one requires a little bit of understanding of first century Jewish culture. You see, for us, this is just a beautiful picture of Jesus comforting one of his closest followers. But in first century Jewish society, it was an issue that Jesus had appeared to Mary first because Mary was, wait for it, a woman. Shocking. I know. No issue for us at all, but in the Jewish Talmud it states that any evidence given by a woman is not valid to offer. The Jewish historian Josephus records that the testimony of women is not to be omitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. They simply didn't trust the words of women. Ridiculous, I know. But for John and the other Gospel writers to claim that Jesus appeared first to a woman doesn't do them any favours. In their context, it would have been better for them to leave that out. It actually hurts their case. The only reason to leave it in will be because this is the way it happened. And they want people to know how it happened. Jesus appeared first to Mary. Why? Well, she was at his grave in tears. And he loved her like a sister. Why wouldn't he? want to comfort her. And of course, Jesus has no issue using women as witnesses. He did it before with the woman in Samaria, and now he does it again on this, the most important of all days. He makes her his first witness. Go and tell my brothers what you have seen. And she is obedient. Later on that day, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And they receive their commission. Jesus appears first to Mary and then the disciples and they become eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And this is just the first day. There are many, many more sightings and witnesses in the coming days and weeks spoken about in numerous places in the New Testament. The Gospels, the Acts um, and Paul's letters as well. In fact, Paul says, Steve read it at the start of our service this morning, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. You can go and ask them, just have a chat, although some have fallen asleep. He also appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And it's significant here that Paul mentions both himself and James as eyewitnesses, because neither were supporters of Jesus in his lifetime. James is one of Jesus' brothers, and we're told by John in chapter 7 of his gospel that his brothers did not believe in him. And honestly, who could blame them? As I said at the start, he made some pretty crazy claims about himself. I know if one of my brothers started calling himself the Son of God, I think I would be looking to have him committed. (laughs) 
What would it take to change my mind? Well, I guess it would have to be something pretty spectacular. Like, I don't know, rising from the dead? You got it. Now, James becomes a prominent member of the early church. He's eventually martyred for his faith. He really believes Jesus changed his mind. Paul was the same, although he wasn't an unbeliever. He was actually vehemently opposed to those who followed Jesus. He hunted them down. He carted them off to jail, and he was good at it. He was a Christian hunter. Sounds like a show-off Dave or something, doesn't it? But he was really good at it. He had a bright future ahead of him in this particular career. He claims that an encounter with the risen Jesus was what changed his mind. A career choice that led him to be persecuted, beaten, stoned, and eventually martyred. Why make that choice unless it's true? In fact, nearly all of those who claimed to be eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus suffered, and many were martyred. So I'm inclined to believe them when they say that they've seen him, because why would you choose to suffer and die for a dead man? Yet if you know what awaits you after death, surely there's no other way to live. Finally, in this chapter of John, we read about Thomas, someone who took a little bit more convincing It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, "Uh, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, gross, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out and put your hand into my side and stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. I wonder if he's talking about us there. I like that John includes this story of Thomas because I I resonate with Thomas. He was obviously dealing with his grief in his own way. He hadn't been with the other disciples when they were together and he missed Jesus' first appearance. And although I'm sure he went to the tomb himself and spoke to Mary and the others, he was not prepared to believe their testimony. He needed to experience Jesus for himself. And Jesus knew what he needed. When he meets him, he parodies his words back to him. Put your fingers here, touch my side. And he gives him what he needs to believe. And he gets it. My Lord, my God, it's really you. You're alive. And John finishes his chapter by telling us this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I think in this, John presents his challenge For this chapter and indeed the whole book, and it's a challenge to all of us. And I think the challenge is this. What will it take for you to believe? For John, it was the empty tomb and the folded grave clothes. That's where he starts to believe. For Mary, it was hearing Jesus call her name. For the disciples, it was seeing him face to face in that locked room. And for Thomas, it was touching his hands and his side. But what about you? You see, John writes this account in the hope that we will be convinced of the truth that Jesus is alive. 
He says, I've told you these things in order that you might believe, but that's not the end of the journey, because here is the plot twist. You thought we'd had the plot twist already, didn't you? The plot twist isn't that Jesus came back from the dead. He told his disciples he was going to do that many times. They just didn't listen very well. The plot twist is that we get to be a part of the story. You see, John doesn't expect our journey to end when we start believing in Jesus. He says that our belief leads to life in his name. New life. Abundant life. A life filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with peace. Not a life free from suffering and pain. We're never promised that. But a life where we know for certain that the ultimate victory is won. You see, if I, think, I think if Jesus was just some guy who did a lot of cool stuff, some miracles and all the rest of it, John might have recorded more of what he said and did because that's all there would have been. But John knows that he doesn't need to because John isn't inviting us to learn about a dead prophet. John is inviting us to begin a relationship with a risen and living Jesus. Come and get to know Jesus yourself. Come and get to know him. Because guys, it turns out, all those crazy things he said about himself, all those amazing things that he did, it was all true. It was all true. So, my challenge, where are you today? Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you've never known him. I want you to know today that you can know him. Maybe this morning as you've sat and you've heard the songs and you've seen the passion and the conviction in people's hearts and you've listened to scripture This morning, maybe God has just stirred something in your heart, a longing to know him. In a few moments, I'm going to pray a prayer to conclude this time, and you can pray that prayer along with me if you want to start that journey of knowing Jesus this morning. Perhaps for others, you knew Jesus, you believed in Jesus a while ago, but just right now, things have become really hard. Things have become really challenging. Your faith has been tested in ways it's never been tested before. And somewhere along the way, you've lost the sense and the knowledge and the truth that Jesus has the victory. And it feels like the world is bearing down on you. It feels like that hope that you had has turned to hopelessness. For some of you, that's the case this morning. That joy has turned to dissatisfaction. This morning I want you to reawaken to the truth that Jesus is alive. That the ultimate victory has been won once and for all. I want you to know that deep in your heart. And I want you to come back to living in the reality of a risen saviour. Guys, we have so much hope in Jesus. Because he's alive. And we're going to sing a song in response this morning to this message. I wonder if the band would just join um, behind me. We're going to sing a song in response to this message. Not to my message, but to the message of Easter. And this song is a celebration of the victory that Jesus has won for us. The refrain on this song says this. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. 
the resurrected King is resurrecting me. And I want us to declare that victory this morning. And I want that truth to go deep down into our hearts this morning so that we leave here secure in the knowledge that Jesus is alive. Before we do that, we're going to pray. And as I've said already, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can pray this prayer with me. If you do know Jesus and you just feel like, you know what, he's been so distant recently, then this is a prayer that you can pray as well. I'll let you into a secret. I've prayed this prayer more than once in my journey, as I'm sure many of you have as well. So let's just bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning for sending your Son to die for us. I'm sorry that in the past I have rejected your love and your mercy. Forgive me of my sin. This morning I want to declare that I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and that from this day on I want to live my life for you. Would you bring me to life? In Jesus' name, amen.